Hi, my name is Lou, and the Old Testament reading is found in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God some bread from the early produce, 20 loaves of barley bread and fresh grain from his bag. Elisha said, give it to the people so they can eat. His servant said, how can I feed 100 men with this? And Elisha said, give it to the people so they can eat. This is what the Lord says, eat and there will be follow leftovers. Eat and there will be leftovers. So the servant gave the food to them. They ate and had leftovers in agreement with the Lord's word, the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Carol, and the New Testament reading is found in Acts 6, verses 1 through 4. Now in those days, when the disciples were growing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking Jews against the native Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called the whole group of the disciples together and said, It is not right for us to neglect the word of God to wait on tables, but carefully select from among you, brothers, seven men who were well attested, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this necessary task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Taylor. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 9 through 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him that all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds leaned in, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cures those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there are about five thousand men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and he had them sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. You may be seated. Each week we stand for the Gospel reading as a way of recognizing that these are the words of Christ. And we read the Bible Christologically. We read the Bible with Christ as the center. And while we affirm it as the Word of God, there's special um, honor that we, that we give to the Gospel because that's, that informs the way we read the rest of Scripture. So that's the reason we stand. Some of you are wondering, why do we do this? Sit, stand. It's like calisthenics in church, you know? But it's, it's a way of reminding ourselves we stand under the Word of God as it's being read. But also when the Gospel reading is read, we give special reverence to these words that come from Christ. We're starting a new series today called Given. Um, some of you will know this, but we say very uh, much around here, very often around here, blessed, broken, given. And we use these words to talk about who we are as a church. And so I'd like to spend a little bit of time just setting that up for you and saying a little bit about New Life Downtown and New Life Church in general and how this came to be. I'll say a little word about where we are in the season and why this series. So, 
New Life Church began in 1985, and we're coming up on a 30-year anniversary here. I joined New Life Church in the summer of 2000, so I'm coming up on 14 years of being part of this church. It's amazing how time flies when you're having fun. And um, uh, we had a, a major transition at church, with church leadership at the, at the end of 2006, I uh, had an interim senior pastor for a year, and then in 2007, the Lord uh, brought a, a, a pastor to us named Pastor Brady Boyd, and he's coming up on seven years of being the senior pastor here at New Life, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. Through the process of that, I, I think for both Holly and I, we made several transitions in how we served and how we um, um, took our place at New Life. So for the first Eight years or so, most of my ministry role at New Life Church was through praise and worship. I was part of the worship ministry. It would help lead on Sunday mornings. I led worship for our college ministry, was involved with a band that we had started and some of those other things, but was also teaching occasionally. And then I ran um, the New Life School of Worship, which was a program that was uh, designed to train up worship leaders for local churches. In 2009, we were given kind of a, a short sabbatical, a four, six-week kind of um, extended time off. And during that time, Holly and I really began praying about what the Lord wanted to do in our lives and where we fit. And we felt this rising sense that the Lord was calling us into pastoral ministry. And so we thought, okay, so this must mean that we're going to be sent out, and this must mean that you know, you know, our time to leave has come. And I shared this with Pastor Brady, and he was such a, such a wise and gracious leader. Um, he could have said, you know, Glenn, you've never actually preached weekly. And so you might want to do that before you just go out and plant. He didn't say it that way, but what he said was, what would you think about starting a Sunday evening service um, first. This is a, a need that we have. And, and so we began to pray about that, and we did it. And so in the fall of 2009, we started New Life Sunday Night. Now, out of curiosity, how many of you were with us in the Sunday night days? Come on, shout out now. Yeah. And so you remember that, that during the process of leading that service, many of the things that, that were in my heart began to be worked out in that service. Some of the things had to do with um, how we think about the gathered church and how we think about what we do when we gather together. And that would be a whole another sermon in itself. But I began to think more intentionally about how we can make our services Christ-centered, gospel-shaped, and led by the Spirit. And what I mean by that is that everything in word and in deed, everything we see and say points to Jesus as the center and we started thinking about, okay, maybe we can rearrange certain pieces, even the visual layout of our service. This is on purpose. And then the gospel-shaped piece, I mean, we began to think about what is it that makes a service, not just a variety show with different elements and things that keep it kind of moving, but to make a service tell the story of the gospel. And so that's the reason for us here on Sunday mornings why after the sermon comes what? Confession and communion. Why? Because the response to the word of God is not, okay, that's great, that was inspiring, I'm pumped up, I'm going to go. The response to the word of God is, Lord, have mercy, and reminded of our need for grace, and then rejoicing that grace has already been given to us in Christ, and thinking about ways that our service actually reenacts a story, the story of the gospel. And the spirit-led piece, that's the piece that does, a lot of us, you know, you hear spirit-led and you think, that's when you ditch the sermon, Right? And things run over, and it's like, woo, the Spirit's moving. Because obviously the Spirit couldn't decide on Tuesday what was going to happen on Sunday. And it's like, 
has to be a 10, right? No, spirit-led in the sense of the day of Pentecost where they were full of the Holy Spirit and they began to do what? They began to preach the gospel in a language that people could understand. Uh, We began to say, what does it mean for a church to say, Holy Spirit, lead us to make Christ the center and the gospel the story in such a way that our city and our culture can hear it. And that, ha- that has to do with all kinds of, of, of different decisions. And so we began to, to stumble through this on Sunday nights. And we would, we, about two years into it, um, many of us on the leadership team had this sense that the Lord was using this to, um, to do something miraculous in people's lives. And we had this sense of what if, what if this was on a Sunday morning and in the downtown, in the heart of our city, could there be something of the Lord in this? And so I, I, on, a, on kind of an informal conversation with Pastor Brady, I said, what would you think about a separate thing, uh, a, a meeting downtown, taking sort of what we have on Sunday nights? And, and he says, well, who would lead this? And I says, well, well and I says, well, maybe me? <laughs> and he said, well, let's talk to the elders. And so, you know, Larry Yonkers here, he's one of the elders, you We'll know more details about that elder meeting than I would. Um, but how it was told to me is that there was this sense of bearing witness with our eldership and saying, yeah, this is right. This is the season. And so, it, honestly, this was a new step for New Life Church because we've never done another location. And there are many churches that do campuses. You might be familiar with that phrase, campuses. Um, but, but one of the things that I really appreciate about Brady is he doesn't think about leadership in terms of reproducing yourself. Okay, let me say this. I've come to learn that good leaders don't reproduce themselves. Good leaders pay attention to what the Spirit of God is doing in others and call it out. You see, I think we have too much of a person, too many person-centered ministries that say, I just need to reproduce myself, and therefore the only people who can work with me are people who are just like me. I think one of the graces that's on Pastor Brady's life is the fact that he and Pam, have a, their two children are adopted. And so he's really had to learn to live out what it means to have sons and daughters that even by biology and DNA don't have direct connections and yet are sons and daughters no less. And this is such a picture of the spiritual family of God where we look at one another and we say, you're kind of like me, you're nothing like me, you know, and yet somehow we're all in this together. And so Brady said, he said, I, I, I see what the Spirit of God is doing in you and in this team, and I want that to flourish, and that's what we need to do for downtown. So in, on Easter Sunday of 2012, we began New Life Downtown. We met at the Carter Payne. Who was there? The Carter Payne. It was this old church building down, down South Weber. And right from the first Sunday, it, we knew the space was not <laughs> going to work. <laughs> we had two services, and everybody was sitting on windowsills. I mean, it was like if those windows could have opened, they would have been open, then people would have fallen out. I mean, it was just that crowded in there. And so after a few months of that, we said, okay, Lord, we, we need to do something else. And we prayed about different locations, but felt very strongly that we needed to be as close to downtown as possible. Well, here we are in the oldest high school of the city founded by, you know, or named after the founder here, General Palmer. And we've had a wonderful relationship with the school district, and we've been meeting in Palmer High School since August of 2012. So again, coming up on two years of that. And a a central piece to our language here at New Life Downtown is 
table language. And so you'll, you'll hear Evan say things like, we gather at the Lord's table on Sunday, but we gather at your table throughout the week. That's why we have meal groups. All of our groups are whatever else they have. Yes, they have prayer, and yes, many of them contain a Bible study component and, and other things like that. But you know, the one thing they have to include is meals. You're like, why? That seems so weird. Like, that's just so unspiritual. Eating? Meet? Eat? Pray? That's your discipleship model? Sounds like really strange, right? I think there's something that's been lost about the spirituality of a meal. And in our culture where we drive through stuff all the time, let's just get it to go, let's just get it. Meat eating is sort of incidental. One of the things Holly and I noticed just on our little trip to Europe last month is that nobody was drinking their coffee on the go. This is so strange. I mean, in the, in the train, on the train, I mean, nobody's carrying their, like Americans, you know, we're going to have a cup of coffee, but we're also going to be getting somewhere, you know. <laughs> and it's like, over there, it's like, if you have coffee, you need to sit down and have a cup of coffee. Or have your tea. If you're going to have tea, sit down and have tea, please. <laughs> Jolly good. <laughs> and there's something, about, there's something about slowing down the spirituality of a meal that makes us slow down. And what a beautiful picture of the church. That we slow down long enough on a Sunday morning. We slow down long enough to say, here, let's sit at this table, gather at the Lord's table. We're going to take our time and be formed. Families. I grew up in a home that always, with very few exceptions, always had family dinners. Because family dinners is where you learn to be a family. Something about the table. Well, we've talked about blessed before. Blessed, I think of that word as Sunday mornings, our, our corporate worship, we rehearse our, our, we rehearse our blessedness as we center on Christ and rehearse the gospel. Broken, you've heard Evan explain this, broken we think really is a picture of what happens in our meal groups because you can't share your life unless you're willing for your life to be broken with one another. That's how something is shared. But given, I really have the sense as I've been praying about this upcoming season for our church, I have the sense that this word given is the word for, for this next season. The sense of our lives being given, the sense that we are not here just for ourselves, not only as individuals, but also as a church. We're not here just for ourselves. We are meant to be given. And so this week, we're going we're to do three weeks of this, and we'll talk about a different angle of this givenness. Now, zoom out with me for a moment. We live in a culture that is still hungry for meaning. Whatever else we've done away with in life, we've not been able to do away with the ache and the longing to have our lives matter, for our lives to have significance. And yet... There's this other thing that says, I don't really want anybody to tell me what to do. We want autonomous selves. We want guarded selves. And so the result is we make meaning for our lives with things that are within our reach. Let me spell it out for you. We make the things that give meaning to our lives are all the things that we can attain. So if I could just have this vacation, if I could have this job, if I could... 
work here, if I could live here, all the things that are within our reach all of a sudden begin, become the things that give meaning to our lives. Because we've got to have some form of meaning, but we don't want anybody else to really impose on us. So I am going to choose the things around me and say, my family, it's all about my family, or it's all about my friends, or it's all about my, my hobbies, it's all about skiing, or it's all about, this. It's all about these things. And all these things within our reach, this is my little universe that gives meaning to my life. The trouble is the kingdom (laughs) has a way of shattering those walls. The announcement of a kingdom is an announcement that there is a reality that transcends your world. The announcement of the kingdom is an announcement that says, you know what, there's something greater going on. There is a king who rules, like we talked about earlier as we were praying this morning. And the announcement of the kingdom says, meaning in life is not about your guardedness, but your givenness. Jesus comes in announcing that the way of this kingdom is if you seek to save your life and guard it and keep everything close to the vest and say, you know what, I'm just going to do these things so I can script my outcomes and script my retirement and this is all here. Nothing evil about those things, by the way, except when it becomes our means of control. Except when it becomes our means of control. And Jesus comes and says, actually, if you want to find your life, lose it. There is a kingdom call that calls us away from the smallness of guarding and the smallness of preserving and the smallness of autonomy and says, no, 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 you need to be given. Our text this morning comes from Luke 9. You heard this in the gospel reading, and I just want to highlight a couple things about it. We'll jump in and out of it a little bit, but I just want to point out just a few things. Verse 10, Luke kind of sets the scene. Jesus took the disciples, withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it, and they followed him. I mean, this is like they're trying to get some alone time. They're trying to get a retreat going. Jesus and his posse, just trying to have some time. And these crowds are like, we found him, we found him, we got him. And the question is, how is Jesus going to respond? And it says right here, it says in verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them. If you're the underlining type, underline that phrase, he welcomed them. One of the commentaries I was reading this week said, this phrase, he welcomed them, is reminiscent of a gracious host. It's like a friendly neighbor who's the head of the household who's saying, come on over. I got plenty of food. Come on, this is Jesus, the welcoming and gracious host. But contrast this with the very next verse. So he welcomed them, spoke to them of the kingdom of God. There it is. And he cured those who, needed, who had need of healing. And now the day, day began to wear on. The 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away. Here's Jesus, the gracious host, saying, you're here? Well, that was unexpected, but I welcome you. And here's the disciples saying, can we get rid of them, please? Send them away. I remember in the early years when Holly and I led our first small group for our college ministry, and people would stay. Like, the group was over, and then they would stay. And it was like, okay, I know y'all are 18, and you got nowhere to go, but... And we'd, I, would, I would get up and start, like, closing the blinds and, like, turning off lamps. You know, nobody would get the hint, you know. I'd start stretching and be like, well, 
guys, thanks for coming tonight. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Jesus, the welcoming host, me always wanting to say, hey, can you, can you move on now? And I was thinking, the table in Luke, uh, we'll come back to that. So Jesus, Luke 13, Luke 9, verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. The disciples basically said, Jesus, the people are the problem. The disciples are basically saying the people are the problem, but Jesus is saying the people are your responsibility. The disciples feel that these crowds are becoming the problem, and Jesus is saying, no, actually, they're not the problem. They're your responsibility. Now, can we get real for just a minute? I think there is something that happens as a congregation grows, something that impinges upon our desire to just be the 12, our desire to kind of just, you know, just be with Jesus, just be here, and to say, hey, hey, Glenn, I, I, you know, the nursery is really crowded. Is there a way we just can, you know, or this, it's getting kind of hot in here in the summers, the fans are broken this summer, oh my goodness, you know, like, can we just not, yeah, you're, that's the reason you're a little warm. I told you, bring a cold drink, wear shorts, all tips for you for next week. But there's something in us that says, can we just, can we stop? I mean, can we not, is this good? I have people ask me from time to time, so, so what's going to happen? I mean, is this going to just keep growing? And I'm not always sure how to respond to that. I'm not trying to make this grow. You notice we are notoriously poor at marketing. <laughs> but what do we do if people come? Do we say, well, I mean, just they, can't they go somewhere else? Plenty of churches in town, can't they, you know? Can't they just, you know, find some other? I mean, I, this is, I really like this church. Now it's harder to find parking. The lobby's crowded. The nursery's great. And Jesus says that these people are not the problem. These people are your responsibility. Jesus, can't we send them away? And he says, actually, could you give them something to eat? Huh? <laughs> what? What? No, no, I said, can we send them away? And then it goes on. The rest of verse 13, they said, but we have no more than five loaves and two fish, and unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, and the hint there is, of course, we don't have the money for this. Isn't it funny that we always think the things we have are not enough for the thing that God wants to do? And so there's these people, and we said, Jesus is saying, I want to welcome them. I want to extend hospitality, and we're saying, we, we, we ain't got it. Or we point to the things that are beyond our reach. Oh, well, you know, I mean, you know, we, we're in a school building, and we, you know, we don't really have a big staff. I mean, can't you guys figure out a way to solve this problem? No, I, I, I think Jesus is saying, you give them something to eat. Well, I mean, I, but how could we possibly do that? I mean, you know, I'm a busy person. I've got this going on. All I have is, and then you fill in the blank. All I have is... X. I don't have much time. I don't have much energy. I don't have many gifts. I don't have much stuff. I, I don't have much money. I mean, I, no, I can't. And Jesus says, verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. By the way, one of the commentaries said, essentially what Jesus is doing is breaking them up into, wait for it, meal groups. It's like, this is genius. It's like this. I showed it to Evan. I was like, look at this. 
that the phrase for have them sit down is like recline, as you would at a formal meal, and the groups there, it's like, this is perfect. Anyway, and they did so and had them all sit down. See, the disciples said, we have nothing. Jesus says, start preparing. Start preparing. We keep pointing to the things that we don't have, and Jesus says, just, just prepare. Just get ready. I want to say to you that they begin preparation out of obedience, not out of abundance. A lot of times you think, well, I've got to wait until we have a surplus of volunteers. You know what? That day is never going to come. You know what? Let's, let's start organizing when we have a surplus of volunteers. Actually, the, the, the way the kingdom seems to orient is when there's a surplus of need, we start preparing, and then the Lord of the harvest raises up laborers. But we start preparing for it. I felt at the beginning of this year that it was our role to begin to talk to our team leaders to start preparing. And so we've been talking to all of our team leaders saying, how can we prepare for each of your teams to more or less double by September? And they all kind of looked at me like, you're crazy. I was like, no, I, I know. But let's just start preparing for it. Let's start preparing for it. Children's classrooms, so many of you parents are like, are you ever going to double the classes for like under four, four and unders? Because it's like crowded in there. I know. We've started preparing. We've got more classrooms we can reserve. What we need, though, are more people. We prepare out of obedience, not out of abundance. It's possible for us here downtown, it's possible that in late September we'll add a second service. We're preparing. It's possible that by the end of September, there'll be a 9 a.m. and an 11 a.m. service downtown. We'll, let's, we'll, let's keep watching this. Let's keep getting ready. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work if we start to believe that the church has this under control. Do you know what I mean? This is my fear. Just, just my heart, sharing my heart with you. My fear is something grows, is that there becomes an us and them. And there becomes a y'all as the staff, y'all as the team, and we the people, or we the customer. You know, and so, and, and this, is, this is how it happens, is you hear the subtle shift in language. Instead of saying, hey, you know what we should do? That changes to, you know what you should do? This happens as something grows. People say, you know what, you know what, you know what you guys need to do? You guys need to have better signs for the parking. Which guys is that? Us guys? We? Is that the we part of we? I think the miracle of the kingdom is participation. The miracle of the kingdom is that Jesus takes these 12 disciples. They were hoping for a private tutorial with Jesus and says, and Jesus says, actually, I'm going to teach you how the kingdom works by actually inviting you to participate in it. What if the mode of discipleship for you is not that it can just be us four and no more, but the mode of discipleship for all of us is that we join with Jesus in what he's doing to feed the people? What if our mode of discipleship is saying, okay, okay, I will join in. I've only got this. I don't have much. There's no money in the pockets. There's no, not much time left over. Five loaves and two fish. I mean, what's that going to do for all this need and all this stuff? What's that going to do? And Jesus says, just Watch. Give it and just watch. 
Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. There are three stories in Luke's gospel where Jesus more or less uses an identical formula where he takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. This is why many people believe that Luke was doing this. The same Luke who wrote this gospel wrote the book of Acts. And many believe that Luke is doing this to say the table imagery, the table metaphor shaped everything about the church's life. And that actually this is a picture for what it means to be the people of God. We are blessed, we are broken, we are given. This is a foreshadow. The three moments in Luke's gospel, this is one of them, the feeding of the 5,000. The next is Passover itself. And the final one is is his meal with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And do you know what happens in each one of them? In each one of these stories, Jesus reveals himself. Something about his identity is revealed in every one of these stories. If you look in your Bible, if you have kind of a a, a physical Bible, you can see this very clearly. The story right before the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke 9 is what? It's Herod being perplexed about who Jesus is. It's Herod saying, who is this Jesus? And then the story right after this is Peter saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in between is the story about Jesus at a table. Why? Because in every one of these table stories in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, if people would gather, if you would come around the table, I will reveal myself. I will show myself to be the Messiah. See, here's the miracle of what Jesus does. Jesus at the table is the host. Jesus becomes the host. When he stood up and welcomed the crowds who followed him, this isn't Jesus just trying to be an extrovert. This is Jesus doing something significant. This is Jesus saying, I am ever the welcoming host. And Jesus at the table actually, as we see in the next story, is the feast. Jesus himself becomes the feast. The thing whom people feed on the one by whom transformation happens. And you see, church, your role and my role is to set the table. That's what we are. We are people who set the table. That can look in any number of ways. That can look like leading a meal group. That can look like saying, you know what, I'm just going to informally every week just going to pray about who the Lord wants me to go out to lunch with after church. Or it could be that you found two or three people that, are, that you think, you know what, I'm just going to check in on them and we're going to invest in these friendships, these relationships. Or it could be that you say, I'm going to actually serve in this way because Jesus is the host and the feast, but we get to set the table. We get to set the table. I found this wonderful quote about this text from one of the commentaries this week. Jesus is the ultimate host at our Eucharistic meals. At the breaking of bread, we recognize him for who he is. There, in a wonderful way, we find the nourishment that we need, but there also we are challenged to meet the needs of others and to recognize the resources that through Jesus we actually have to be able to meet the needs. Perhaps the thing that stops us short is that most of us believe that we don't have enough, that we are not enough. Perhaps the thing that plagues us is this, this looming thought that says, oh, joining the team, setting the table, that's for the super Christians. 
That's for the people who have a good track record, who don't struggle with sin. That's for the people who are, you know, got it figured out. I'm just waiting. You know, Luke, all around this little story in Luke 9, are stories about the disciples making a mess of things. These are the farthest people from the ones who've got it figured out. They're not. I mean, really, if you read through Luke's gospel, this story plops down in the middle of the disciples making a mess of things. They're the ones who want to send the crowd away. They're not the epitome of Christ's love. This is not like 12 Mother Teresa's saying, oh, how can we serve, Lord? This should be an encouragement to you because Jesus wants all of us to join in. All of us. All of us. This isn't for super Christians. This isn't for saints. This isn't for perfect people. This isn't for bored people. This isn't for young people. This isn't for old people. This is for everybody. Because the way of the kingdom is always a way that calls us out of our guardedness and calls us into givenness. This is a Jesus who's always saying to you and to me, would you place your life in my hands? Would you place your life in my hands? This morning, at the end of the service, when you walk out the door, we have a card for you because sometimes people say, well, spell it out. What exactly? I mean, we're really, where, where could I really use my gifts? Where could I really contribute? So we've made a card for you. Spells it out. Here's some of the places. Here's some of the... The very simple ways talks about the significance and the responsibilities, each team. So you can take it, I'm not asking you to sign up today, but you can take it, and here's what I would like to ask. I would like to challenge every one of you to pray about it this week. And it could be that the Lord will say to some of you, you know what, not on these teams, but in this way. So maybe for some of you the answer is, okay, I, I don't think any of these teams are it, but I'm going to just have my radar up when I come in on a Sunday and see who, or with these specific friendships, or with the, you know, it could be. But for, for many others of you, the Lord would say, okay, you're trying to keep drawing the circle smaller, and I keep trying to draw the circle bigger. And you keep saying, I've got it, we're on a little retreat with Jesus, send the crowd away. And Jesus is saying, I'm welcoming them, how might you give them something to eat? How might you play a part in the miracle of the kingdom? So pray about it this week. Next week, there'll be opportunities to talk to the team leaders and to find out how to jump in and how to actually get involved. But for all of us here, the work that must begin in our hearts is the willingness to hand our lives over to Jesus. Five loaves, two fish. It's kind of, I was kind of banking on that. Our Old Testament reading, Elisha saying, feed the men. <laughs> Excuse me, I need this. Feed the men. But uh, prophet, man of God, guy, I need this. <laughs> feed the men. You will have leftover. Oh. And the strange paradox of the kingdom is the more you give of yourself to Jesus, the more you find life and life more abundantly. Amen? It's true because of Jesus. It's true because of the cross. It's true because Jesus' own life was given. Jesus' own life in the garden was surrendered back up to the Father. He says, I don't want to do this. Is there another way? Nevertheless, your will be done. And because of Jesus' givenness, 
we can always trust. The hands that you are committing your life into are hands that are pierced with nails. Hands that have given all. Hands that have surrendered it all. These are the hands into which we place our lives. Would you pray with me this morning?